And here comes the sun. Praise the Lord. Here comes the sun. Um, this is not a sermon in our series. Uh, I won't be preaching tonight in the South, so I didn't want to. I didn't. I want to keep the North and the South on the same series with respect to what our purpose and vision is as a church. So this is a freebie for you guys. It's no extra charge. No extra charge. You still have to pay attention. Lord willing, uh, that would be good. <laughs> Throw money if you like. No problem. We don't have a problem with that. Uh, in July 1967, a beautiful young 17-year-old woman dove into the murky waters of Chesapeake Bay, and she woke up in a hospital laying face down in a canvas frame. Her fifth cervical vertebrae was crushed. She would be a quadriplegic the rest of her life. She writes, I laid there hour after hour staring at the floor. All I could think was, great God, way to go. I'm a brand new Christian. Is this how you treat your new children? I prayed for a closer walk with you. If this is your idea of an answered prayer, I'm never going to trust you again. I can't believe I have to lay here face down and do nothing but count the tiles on the floor in this stupid torture rack. I hate my existence. She continues, my thoughts got darker and darker. No longer was my bitterness a tiny trickle. It became a raging torrent. Then it got worse. I got hit with a bad case of the flu and suddenly not being able to move was peanuts compared to not being able to breathe. She said, I was done. I was broken in two. She continues, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I would rather die than face this. Oh God, I don't have the strength to face this. I want to die. Fast forward 40 years. She writes, I didn't leave my desperation back in the hospital 40 years ago. Desperation is a part of my life every single day. Each morning a girlfriend comes to help me get out of bed uh, for the day and get ready uh, for the things I must do. And then she writes this. There are so many mornings I hear my girlfriend coming through the front door and I think, oh God, I cannot do this again today. I am so tired. I don't think I can make it even to lunch. Oh God, I cannot do quadriplegia today. I have no resources for this. I have no strength left for this. We'll come back to her in a few minutes. Uh, Peter was reclining at uh, the table with the Lord Jesus. It was the night before the cross. It was, the, it was Christ's last Passover meal. He was teaching and uh, talking about the glory of, of the coming kingdom. And suddenly he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. If you look at some of the other translations, the New King James says, uh, Satan has asked for you. The Living Bible is, is very vivid. It says, Satan has asked to have you and to sift you like wheat. You know what sift means? Um, as far as wheat is concerned, it's just a process that, that uh, is done to separate the, the fine particles from the coarse particles. Now, if you look in a Greek lexicon, at that word translated sift there in that uh, Luke passage, the word translated sift, it has this meaning. 
To try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. To try one's faith to the verge of overflow. Jesus turns to Peter and He says, Satan has asked permission to try your faith to the verge of overthrow. No doubt this was a startling thing for Peter to hear, but I suspect, and this is just my speculation, I suspect that Peter is not overly concerned for two very different reasons. One is, I think he believes that that no doubt he knows Christ is God. He's seen Him call a dead man out of the tomb. He's seen the omnipotent power of God. And he no doubt knows that God loves him, that Jesus Christ loves him. And I think Peter thinks, this great omnipotent loving God will protect me from all serious temple trials. I think Peter's thinking this. And I think too... I think Peter's not too concerned because Peter has a lot of confidence in himself. You know this about Peter, right? In fact, in Luke 22, 23, Peter says, I am ready to go to prison and die for you, Lord Jesus. I think Peter thinks he can take anything that Satan would dish out. So I think think Peter's probably like some of us in here this morning. um, That we'd have a pretty good handle on how God does things. And how God will handle us. Peter was thinking, God's omnipotent. God loves me. He'll protect me from all serious temporal trials. He's also thinking, I can take anything Satan's got. Okay, Peter's he's wrong on both counts. He's wrong on both counts. And we'll get back to Peter in just a minute. So I hope you have your Bibles and uh, open to the book of Job. You heard the text being read. Uh, Job is the greatest man in the East. God has prospered him unbelievably. He has many children, uh, seven sons to be precise, uh, which is an awesome thing for a man in, in this era. Seven sons, three daughters. And Satan comes before God and he accuses uh, Job. But first, look at this in verse 8 of chapter 1, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. He is a blameless and upright man. He fears me and he turns away from evil. And so Satan accuses Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge around him and blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? Satan says, verse 11, But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse your name. And the Lord grants permission for Satan to sift his child. I want you to understand this. Verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13, And now it happened on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest uh, brother's house, that a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 16, While he was speaking, another also came and and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, "While While he was still speaking, another came also and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the, on the camels and took them and slew the servants at the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine 
in uh, their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Okay, Job's world just ended. Job's world as he knows it just ended. It's unspeakable loss. It's unbearable pain. It's utter despair. It's mind-numbing and heart-numbing pain. Perfect anguish for Job. Satan has asked to sift Job. To sift his faith to the verge of overthrow. And God has granted him that permission. What will Job do? Maybe more importantly, what would you do? What would you do? I often hear the book of Job described as a lesson on why Christians suffer. I disagree with that. It's not a lesson on why Christians suffer. It's a lesson on why men serve God when they lose everything. That's what the book of Job is about. God is so beautiful. That's what this is about. And Satan can't stand it that men love God like that. He can't stand it that the true, true children of God love Him like that. So let me ask you, if something like this happened in your life, would you serve God? Let me ask you, why do you serve God? And friends, this is a huge question for you and me. This is a huge question for you and me this morning. I, I've, been in, uh, I've been in lay and vocational ministry for 20 years now. And I've run into more than a few men or women who kind of use God as, as kind of a God-sized rabbit foot. He's kind of a cosmic lucky charm. And they just want to keep God working for them. So they tip their hat to Him on Sunday morning and just want to keep those blessings coming. And this is the core of their allegiance to God. Keep those blessings coming, O oh God. You may have encountered this as well. I see it many, many times. And this is Satan's allegation against Job. And friends, if you're a Christian this morning, this is Satan's allegation against you. That you only love God because it's good for business. You only love God because He's blessing you. You only love God because He gives you every good thing. That's the only reason you love Him. You don't love Him because of who He is. You love Him because He's good to you. It's a conditional love. And Satan wants to reveal that. Let me ask you. Do you love God's blessing more than you love God? That's the question that's before us this morning. And this is not academic. It is not theoretical. Because if you profess to love Jesus Christ, you can count on it. Satan is asking for you. Satan is asking for you. He would overthrow your faith if he could. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone. And Peter's writing to Christians. He's not just talking about everybody in the world. He's talking about you and me. He's, he's seeking someone to gobble up. That's what Peter says. He's seeking someone to devour. 
And Satan desires to show to God and to the world that his people don't really love him because of just who he is, but because it's good for business, because God blesses his people, and that we really love those gifts more than we love the giver. I love what John MacArthur says. He says, Satan accuses men to God. It's what we just saw with Job. But Satan also accuses God to men. Because Satan is whispering in Job's ear, God's not, he's not real. He's not there. And you know what? You little puny man, even if God's there, he doesn't know you exist. And he certainly doesn't love you. He certainly doesn't care about you. Satan's whispering in his ears. He's whispering in his ears, where's your God now, Job? Where's your God now? Where's your faith now, Job? Show me your God now, Job. He's not God enough to protect you. He doesn't love you. He's turned His back on you. He could care less what's happening to you. Where is your God, Job? Do you still believe? Do you still trust? Will you still obey? <laughs> Next three verses. Verse 20, chapter 1. Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he did what? Someone tell me. He worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Genuine faith. A faith that worships in the midst of pain, loss, tears, and despair. Genuine biblical faith. Let me ask you, would you worship God in that situation? Would you worship God in that situation? If God takes every single thing you have, would you still worship Him? Would you still love Him? Or would Satan be right about you? You can mark it down, friends. He's accusing you right now. That's the only reason you're in a relationship with God is because it's good. That's the only reason. You can count on it. He's saying the same thing about you and me. Job worships, but the sifting is not yet complete. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Satan comes back before the Lord, and, and the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answers that question again. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him. Verse 4, and Satan answered and and, and the Lord, and he said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Verse 6, so the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Satan has asked again to sift Job, and Lord, the Lord gives him permission again. Are you seeing the sovereignty of God here? Verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job with sores and boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd with just a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die! Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job holds fast to God. He holds fast to God, but he doesn't know what's going on. And friends, I've told you this many times, many times, if you're a Christian and you're walking with the living God, many times you're not going to have a clue what He's doing in your life. Particularly in trial, you simply will not have a clue what God is doing. Let me ask you, do you love Him enough not to know? Do you trust Him enough not to know? When it gets as bad as it can get, do you love Him enough and do you trust Him enough? you don't have to know. God never tells Job anything about the why. Never. We'll see that in a few minutes. He lost everything. You know, Job not only lost everything, he lost his theology. Because Job has this simplistic theology that, that was prevalent in that day. That God always temporally blesses the righteous and He always temporally afflicts the wicked. Okay? Job had God in this little box. And you know what? I hazard a guess that some of us in this room probably have God in some little box. And let me tell you what. If you've got God in a box, He doesn't like it, and He's going to get out of that box. If you've got some small, man-centered uh, view of God, uh, some trivial notion of God, I, I, I guarantee you God's going to blow that away. And Job's got, Job's got some, some, uh, some erroneous theology, and God comes and God's going to blow it away. I love what uh, John Piper says about the modern evangelical church. I want you to hear this quote. Listen to this, please. The vision of God in relation to evil and suffering of the modern church is frivolous. The church has, been, has not been spending its inter energy to go deep with the unfathomable God of the Bible. Against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, much of the church is choosing to become more light more shallow, more entertainment-oriented, and therefore, listen to this, and therefore is successful in its irrelevance to massive suffering and evil that is in the world. Do you hear that? The church has become successful in its irrelevance to address massive suffering and evil in the world because we've become so light and we've become so superficial and we've become so shallow and we prefer entertainment more than the Word of God. That's what Piper is saying. Listen to what he says. The popular God of the fun church, quote-unquote, is simply too small and too affable to hold a hurricane in His hand. I love this quote. The God that is preached in most churches today in the West is simply too small and He's too affable to hold a hurricane in His hand. To hold persecution in His hand. And then Piper ends like this, the Bible explodes such trivial notions of the Almighty. Parenthetically, I want to say, you will notice in the book of Job, that Job never even mentions Satan. He never even mentions Satan. What does he say? What does he say? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He says, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity from God? 
Job understands, and I hope every one of you in here understands, that God is sovereign over Satan. As one theologian said, Satan is nothing but a dog on a leash. God is sovereign over him. And what Satan means for evil in Job's life, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? God means for good. God means for good. And God is going to explode those trivial notions that Job has about him. He's going to blow them up. So, as we shall see, that God's best gifts to His children are not temporal pleasures or possessions, but they are a breathtaking glimpse of Himself. And this is what God is going to give to Job. In the balance of chapter 2, Job's friends come to him and uh, they begin to console with him. The next uh, 33 chapters are he and his friends debating this. And and his friends come to him with the same uh, theological presuppositions that Job has. That God always always blesses in a temporal sense the, the, uh, the, the righteous. And He always afflicts in a temporal sense the wicked. And they come with those same presuppositions. And, and they, they analyze and they deduce that Job's calamity must be because of some sin in his life. Okay? That's their deduction. And Job has arrived at the same place that 17-year-old quadriplegic has arrived at. He says, my soul would choose death rather than this pain. And in the next 33 chapters, Job never renounces God And he never discards his faith, but he comes perilously close to impugning the character and the wisdom of God. And I'm just going to give you about four verses here that will give you a taste of what Job has said. Job 10, 1 1 and 2. Job says this, I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why thou dost contend with me. Job 13.3 I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue with God. Job 23.3-4 Oh, that I knew where I might find Him, that I might come to His seat. I would present my case before the Lord and fill my mouth with arguments. Listen to Him. Listen to him. Job 31, 35. Oh, that I had uh, one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Well, guess what? (laughs) The Almighty does. Uh, Although God is under no obligation to come to Job, he's He's certainly under no obligation. He graciously does come to Job. And I want you to notice as God comes to Job, as God comes to Job, and, and, and uh, I want you to notice what God does and what God does not do. Okay? I want you to be on the lookout for what God does and what God does not do. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to flow through uh, chapters 38, 39, and 40. You can turn there with me. I'm just going to pick out some selected verses because I'm going to try to just give you the gist of what God says to Job. Job 38.1 The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you to instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Verse 12, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Job. Verse 16, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea and have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Job, have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you, been, have you seen the gates of, of deep darkness? Job, have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Verse 31, Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season? And guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of heaven or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that the abundance of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or has given understanding to the mind? Verse 19 of 39. Do you give the horse's might, Job? Do you close his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? Uh, his majestic snorting is terrible. Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command, Job, that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer this. Go, uh, God doesn't come answering questions, does He? What does God come doing? He comes asking questions. Friends, God does not give an account of Himself. Even to His beloved children. God does not give an account of Himself. God, God comes to Job and He says, Who are you? to even begin to question me. Who are you, Job, to even begin to question me? I love how the message paraphrases, uh, paraphrases it here. It says, why do you confuse the issue, Job? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job. Get up on your feet. Stand tall. Because I have some questions for you and I want some straight answers. It reminded me of that great verse over in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, where Paul talks about who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Who do you think you are? Friends, we need to have a little humility before God. And I think that's woefully missing in the church today. We have no real awe before Him. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9, Will the thing molded speak to the molder? Why did you make me like this? Does the potter not have the right over the clay? Friends, if you don't understand he's the potter and you're the clay, you don't have the right image in your mind. He has absolute right to do with you as He pleases. He made you. You belong to Him in every sense of the word. Even if you don't love Him, even if you're not in the body of Christ, you're still His by possession. He made you. He owns you. God does not explain Himself to anyone. He doesn't come answering any questions. He comes asking questions. And so, here's the deal. He says, Job, you think you're ready to debate on my level? You think you have what it takes to, to, to call me to account? You think your two and a half pounds of gray matter can match up with me? Okay, he says, here's your qualifying exam. And God gives Job 70 questions. And okay, how many did Job get right? 
This is his qualifying exam to, to debate with God. How many questions does Job answer? Zero. Zero. He answers zero. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Jim Albright, Scott Moore, Adam Davies, Dal Theisman. Where were you? You're going to question me? You think you can question me? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Friends, if you're calling God to account, I want to say two things to you. He's not going to give you an accounting. For one, He's not going to give you an accounting. And, and if, you, if you expect Him to come and, and, and even explain to you, you better, get, you better get a few more answers right than Job did. And you let me know, if you want to persist with God, if you want to persist debating God and challenging God and calling God to account, you let me know how that goes with you. Because I have it on good authority, scriptural authority, that God's not going to explain Himself to you. Remember Job's words, I desire to argue with God. I'm going to give full vent to my, my complaint. Oh, that I wish I knew where He was. I'd tell Him all about it. You remember that? Well, Job doesn't have to find God. God finds Him. Look here at chapter 40. Here's Job's response. He was going to give full vent to his complaint. He was going to argue with the Almighty. Now, Job has caught a glimpse of this awesome God. Listen to what he says. Chapter 40, verse 3. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add no more. Job's out of his league, and he knows it. Okay? He's out of his league. He's got one option. That's to put his hand over his mouth and to lay on his face before this awesome God. That's the only option he has, and that's what he does. No more trivial notions about God for Job. God has come to Job and revealed Himself to Job. Job decided it would be best to let God be God. And he would just be Job. <laughs> friends, I know that sounds simplistic, but friends, if you haven't gotten to that place in your life, you need to get there immediately. You need to get to the place where you can let God be God and you just be you. And this is where Job has come to. This is where Job has come to. Job asked a few more questions and God, God uh, pardon me, God asked a few more questions and, and, and here's how, this is Job's final response. Job uh, chapter 42 this is his final response to the Lord. Verse, verse 2 of chapter 42. Job says, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can, can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that, that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask thee and do, do thou instruct me. Verse 5, I have heard of thy, pardon me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore I repent in dust. I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Friends, I hear this from, from mature Christians many times. I had a seminary professor that went through a debilitating depression. He, 
he uh, a lengthy and debilitating depression. He couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And he talks about this depression in, in, in surprising terms um, because guess who came to him in that depression? Guess who came to him in that depression? He calls it, he calls it his benevolent trial. And what he means by that is that God was giving Himself to him in that trial. In that debilitating depression, God came to him and gave Himself to him. There was a book that came out some years ago written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And it was entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the rabbi concluded that God is kind of a limited God. He really wishes He could give everyone a happy life, but He just can't arrange it all. <laughs> now, what I want to say is, uh, I'll say with all due respect, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard anyone say. And uh, obviously this rabbi has never encountered the, encountered the God of the Bible. Our God, the God of the Bible, has His hands on His children and He will bring us into conformity with the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will do that through uh, great blessing and He will do that through great trial. God will not long allow His children to entertain trivial notions about Him because He will arrange a God encounter. He will come to you and He will blow those trivial notions away. Mark it down. He will. Now back to Peter. God, God gave Satan permission to sift Peter. And I want to show you something from that beautiful text. Luke twenty two thirty two. You remember, he says, Jesus turned and he said to Peter, uh, he said, Satan has asked to sift you. And God's going to give him permission to do it. But I love Luke twenty two thirty two. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Friends, this is why John 10, 28, 29, we have assurance here because Christ is holding us. If we really belong to Him, Christ is holding us. No one can snatch Him out of, can snatch us out of His hand. I love that, I love that truth. And I want to go back, I want to close with that beautiful young woman in that diving accident. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? Joni Erickson taught her. She's, uh, taught her. She's quite well known in Christian circles. This woman who wanted to die when she was 17, she couldn't face the life of being a, a quadriplegic. This woman who has to pray down the strength of God every single day to get out of bed. This is the woman who's written over 30 books. She has a daily radio show with one million listeners. She has an international ministry to the disabled. It's called Wheels for the World. She gets wheelchairs to people who can't get them in the third world. And I think she's going to start a television show uh, this month, actually. It's the last thing I saw on her. God is using her mightily. She... I, she has no trivial notions about the Almighty God, I promise. And I want to share something with you just very quickly. I know I'm going a little long, but I, I, I want to share this with you. John Piper has recently had cancer. Another theologian named David Paulson has also had cancer. And they wrote an article said, they wrote an article entitled, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And you can apply this to every trial. But listen to what, uh, listen to what they say. You're wasting your cancer if you do not believe it, it is designed for you by God. You're going to waste your cancer if you don't believe that if you believe that it is a curse and that it is not a gift. You're going to waste your cancer if you seek comfort from your odds rather than from your God. You will waste your cancer if you refuse to think about death. 
You will waste your cancer if you think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Jesus Christ. You will waste your cancer if you spend more time reading about cancer than reading about God. You will waste your cancer if you let it drive you into solitude instead of deepening your relationships. You will waste your cancer if you grieve as those who have no hope. You will waste your cancer uh, if you treat sin as casually as you did before. You will waste your cancer if you fail to use it as a means to witness to the glory and reality of Jesus Christ in your, li your life. Beloved, if, if you have been holding trivial notions of the living God, when your trial comes, hold them no more. Hold them no more. And when your trial comes, it is from your Father. And He means to bless you through it. He means to show you Himself through it. Sometimes God will let His children totter to see if they will fall on Him. In fact, if you read your Bible, you see it all the time. God will let His children totter. And He intends that His children fall on Him. I'm going to finish with Joni Erickson Tata. The only way she can get out of bed every morning <laughs> is to fall on God. In the morning, she hears her girlfriend coming and, and, and she doesn't know if she can do it again. You heard me read that a while ago. She doesn't know if she can do it again. And she tells God, God, I can't do quadriplegia anymore. I can't do it anymore. And God says, I know. I'll do it with you today. And then she says, I don't have a smile for my girlfriend this morning. I don't have one this morning. And God says, I know. You can use mine. And she says, every day, God comes to her. Every day, she falls on God. And God comes to her. Beloved, when your trial comes, Fall on God. He will come to you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we've, uh, we think so superficially about you. We become so enamored with all your gifts that we don't look past those gifts and truly love and appreciate the giver. To love in a deep and profound and life-changing way. Oh God, may we get our eyes off the blessings. We give thanks, oh God. For you give exceeding abundantly above all that we could think or ask. You do, O oh God, and we praise you for that. But you are better than all of that. You are better. You are better than it all. Oh God, help us to, to be able to confess that in our hearts. Father, may we not have to lose everything to know that truth in our hearts. And oh God, if You do take everything, if You strip everything away, oh God, may we hold fast to You. May You be praying for us. May You pray for our faith that it will not fail. May You hold us in Your hand. Oh God, may we fall on You. May we learn to fall on You in the little bitty trials and the life 
altering trials. May we have a, a daily habit of learning to fall on You and expecting You to show up. Expecting You to be a faithful God. A God who shows Himself to His people. And oh God, may we not enter entertain trivial notions about You. Oh Lord, if we've been guilty, may we get on our face before You in the Word of God. And when we may behold that You are a God who holds a hurricane in His hand. You're a God that holds everything in His hand. That's how awesome You are, Jehovah God. There is no God like You. There is no God beside You. There is no God above You. You hold hurricanes in Your hand. You hold cancer in Your hand. You hold all things in Your hand. Lord, teach us to worship when we lose everything. Teach us to worship when we can't cry anymore. Teach us, oh God, to love you like that, to know you like that, to trust you like that. We pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.